And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. Doing some experiments in the kitchen. Made chicken stock, but I I used too much tomato paste. Oh no. That was like an experiment to like roast everything with tomato paste. And now it tastes like chicken and tomato stock. Sure. What was it supposed to taste like? Chicken stock. All right. Well, (laughs) you're lucky because I like tomatoes. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, you know, we're fine. Yeah. I have also been having kitchen adventures lately. Um, One of my Christmas gifts was the Dungeons and Dragons cookbook, Heroes Feast. And if you're not familiar with this listener, like, the D&D cookbook, I mean... It is food that you could eat while playing D&D, but what the concept of the cookbook is, is, like, here are the dishes that the, like, fictional cultures in the various worlds of Dungeons & Dragons eat. And so, like, given that that's mostly medieval fantasy stuff, there's, like, some really complicated, like, big recipes in here. I've done two so far, and I'm working on the third as we record this. Um, what I'm trying to make today is twice-baked cockatrice wings, which is a tabaxi recipe. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dry rub baked chicken wing deal. Cockatrices, if you don't know, are like... Chickens. They're, they're monster... Chickens that are, like, dangerous. Yeah, they're monster chickens with, like, scorpion tails that will turn you to stone if they sting you. Um, anyways... That's kind of my culinary adventures. Sarah's having culinary adventures. Um, but this is not a cooking podcast. Yeah, this is a horror movie podcast. Right. So what are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching It Conquered the World from 1956, directed by Roger Corman. So we're definitely hopping on the uh, sci-fi trend mm-hmm. here. Um, and the title comes from... It came from outer space, right? Uh, a bit, and then also probably some other science fiction-based things. Yeah, and and since it came from outer space, we've had um, it came from beneath the sea, which we didn't watch for the show because it's a giant monster movie. So yeah, this title is in the wheelhouse of the era's title styles. The last Roger Corman picture we saw from American Releasing Corporation (ARC) was "Day the World Ended." which was paired with The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues in theaters. Now, Day the World Ended, we determined, was not horror, but the other one was. Is that what we determined? I don't remember, Sarah. I think that sounds right, though. Okay. Day the World Ended was the one that was basically, yes, because it was more of a post-apocalyptic survivor movie, whereas Phantom from 10,000 Leagues was a, there's a monster in the lake movie. Yeah. So... That double feature had been very successful. It grossed $400,000 on a combined cost for the two movies of approximately $170,000. Since then, uh, Corman has produced and directed the adventure film Swamp Women and, <laughs> and the Western film The Oklahoma Woman. 
Uh, <laughs> He's just super into women. Yep. Uh, women in lead roles, particularly. So, The Oklahoma Woman was released on a double feature by ARC with Bruno Vesota's film noir Female Jungle, which was the first film appearance of Jane Mansfield. So, it was at this point that ARC changed its name to the one that it would become known by for the rest of its existence, American International Pictures, or AIP. Just as with the previous Corman sci-fi films, uh, Lou Russoff was set to write the screenplay for It Conquered the World, but before the script was finished, Russoff's brother passed away, and so Russoff left to return to Canada uh, to see his family and go to the funeral and deal with all of that. Stuck with an incomplete script and no writer, uh, Corman really didn't have anyone to turn to until Jonathan Hayes, a minor actor who Corman used in like supporting roles a lot, introduced Corman to his friend and roommate Charles B. Griffith, who had written a bunch of screenplays, none of which had been sold or made or produced. And Corman was like, cool, you know how to write, you're hired. Griffith uh, discovered that Russoff's script was nigh incomprehensible, um, which was unusual because despite the fact that Russoff wrote cheap schlock, usually always made sense at least. Griffith sort of realized that Russoff had been trying to write while his brother was in the hospital dying and just... That's a bad scenario to be writing. Like you're right. not... You're going to be way too distracted. Right. So Griffith basically rewrote the script top to bottom, uh, but ultimately only Russoff is credited in the movie's uh, titles. The cast includes some future notables. The male lead is actor Peter Graves. He was born in 1926 in Minneapolis as Peter Arness, uh, but he changed his name to his mother's family name in order to stand apart from his older brother, James Arness, uh, who is best known as the star of TV's Gunsmoke, but best known to us as the uh, carrot-topped alien from The Thing from Another World. Also, if he really wants to get his foot in the door into horror, Graves as a last name is choice. Well, he wasn't trying to get his foot in the door for horror specifically. <laughs> uh, he had been acting on film for five years by this point, hadn't really broken out yet, was doing, you know... All kinds of movies in terms of, like, you know, westerns, war pictures, crime movies, appearing in, you know, minor or supporting parts. Um, the better the role, the lower the budget kind of parts for him. Uh, we actually saw him already briefly as Ben Harper in the opening scenes of Night of the Hunter. That's the kid's dad. Mm. But he would become best known for playing the role of Jim Phelps director of the Impossible Missions Force on seasons two through seven from 1967 to 1973 of the television series Mission Impossible. Uh, in addition to being well-known for that role, um, he's also well-known for hosting the television series Biography during its heyday from 1987 to 1999 alongside Jack Perkins. And uh, Peter Graves passed away in 2010 at age 83. Wow. He's got a voice that I really recognize because, like... You grew up on biography. Yeah, exactly. Another actor appearing here in an early role is a young Lee Van Cleef. Oh, shit. 
Born in 1925 in Somerville, New Jersey, Van Cleef had fought in the U.S. Navy during World War II before pursuing a career on the stage. His theater work in New Jersey got him the attention of talent scouts. He was signed to an agency and went off to Hollywood. His first role was a non-speaking but memorable part as one of the bad guys in 1952's High Noon. He appeared in, again, like a number of westerns, crime movies, films noir, um, as well as a memorable part as the sniper who kills the monster in 1953's Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah. He continued to work as a character actor on TV and in movies until 1965 when he was cast as an anti-hero in Sergio Leone's For a Few Dollars More and then as the villain in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in 1966, which sort of launched him into, like, stardom, name recognition, all of that. And probably also typecast a little bit in the Western genre. Oh, absolutely. He did so many spaghetti Westerns. Um, Typecast is in Westerns. Typecast is the bad guy. He passed away in 1989 of heart failure at age 64. Damn. His health was not great. Our lead actress here is Beverly Garland, who was also born in 1926. Her early roles in the 1950s were in low-budget crime movies or sci-fi pictures. Uh, we've actually already seen Beverly Garland. We saw her as uh, Nola Mason, the waitress who is sexually assaulted by the monster in 1953's The Neanderthal Man. Great. Ugh, I hate that movie so much. Her performance in it is very good, though. Fair, but it's still a shitty movie. Oh, absolutely. Terrible movie. Um, her roles in this period, in these low-budget films, were most often as, like, tough cookies, I guess you could say. Basically, like, an archetype of that era of, like, a tough woman who holds her own in, like, difficult situations. Uh, following her appearance in this film... Corman would cast her as U.S. Marshal Rose Hood, the lead in his gender-bent western Gunslinger, which Garland would always remember as one of her favorite roles. Um, basically, the plot of that movie is that her husband is a U.S. Marshal in, like, a town that has a lot of, you know, bad Fine. guys in it, um, and he gets shot by some of the black hats, so she, like, takes up his role... And, like, declares herself, like, U.S. Marshal of this town, I guess, because her husband was. And then, like, goes after the bad guys and, like, cleans up the town. And, and it's, it's a whole thing. Okay. Today, however, Garland is remembered for a much different role, uh, which is as Barbara, the woman who Fred McMurray's widower character marries in the final three seasons of My Three Sons from 1969 to 1972. Uh, so that show ran 12 seasons. She is Fred McMurray's wife on seasons 10 through 12. Beverly Garland passed away at age 82 in 2008. Another sort of significant first appearance uh, in this movie is actor Dick Miller. Uh, he has appeared in two previous Roger Corman films already, but they were both westerns. So this is his first appearance for, like, the podcast on Scream Scene. Sure. Uh, but we're going to be seeing a lot of him. Uh, because he is one of sort of the most popular character actors in Hollywood for a long time and appears in a lot of Roger Corman movies. Uh, he was born in 1928 in the Bronx and served in the U.S. Navy in World War II before earning his Ph.D. in psychology from New York University. Wow. He worked at Queens General Hospital 
uh, but moved to California in 1952 to try his hand at becoming a writer. He started taking background roles in movies to, like, make ends meet, and first appeared in that capacity in Roger Corman's film Apache Woman. He actually appears as both a townsperson in that movie and as a Native American, and his townsperson character shoots and kills his Native American character. Does that qualify as, like, suicide? Like, <laughs> It's definitely, like, a neat trivia point, I guess. He would go on to become one of Roger Corman's favorite character actors, which would then lead to him becoming one of, like, Hollywood's favorite character actors among the, like, generation of directors that grew up working with and learning from Roger Corman. Uh, so in addition to the films of Corman, he also appears in a lot of, like, Steven Spielberg movies, or Joe Dante movies, or James Cameron movies, or Quentin Tarantino movies, um, because he sort of, in addition to being a character actor, starts to become, like, a reference in and of himself, like an in-joke as being sort of the quintessential that guy. Sure. So, examples of, like, big-name movies that you might recognize him from would include both Gremlins films... Um, the first Terminator, he's the guy that Arnie buys his guns from. Or you might know him from his many, many TV roles over the years. For example, he has a pretty memorable role on an episode of Deep Space Nine, Past Tense, the two-parter from season three where they go back in time to the 2020s and have to deal with the problems of homelessness and poverty. Um, Dick Miller plays, like, the cop, who's like the older, more grizzled cop when they take the cops hostage. Uh, he was also the voice of Chucky Saul in Batman Mask of the Phantasm, as well as a variety of other DC Animated Universe voice roles. He's appeared in every movie made by director Joe Dante, and he's also played a character named Walter Paisley six times over the course of his career, which is basically just like a movie industry in-joke. Uh, and he passed away at age 90 in 2019. Pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan Hayes... I mentioned earlier, uh, appears here in a small role. He's best known for being the lead in the original version of Little Shop of Horrors, a future Corman picture. And writer Charles Griffith also has a cameo. Okay. Like previous Roger Corman sci-fi efforts, the monster here would be designed, built, and performed by Paul Blaisdell. Corman and Blaisdell uh, researched Venus, the planet where the alien is supposed to be from, and they got the impression that it had a higher gravity than Earth. Uh, its gravity is actually 0.9 Gs. Um, so slightly less. That's right. Uh, so based on this misconception, they felt that the creature should be low to the ground and squat. Based on his research, Paul Blaisdell got the impression that any life from Venus would have to be vegetable or fungus-like life. Well, that's like a running trope, that everything from space is, like, vegetable. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Um, so he decided to make the creature resemble a beet red pear. Uh, he dubbed the creature Bula. Okay. And it had rubber skin over a wooden frame, latex antenna, and carved wooden teeth. Flashlights placed inside it would make the eyes light up. And it was mounted on wheels so that Blaisdell would crouch inside it in order to move around. Uh, it did have long arms that, like, 
Blaisdell could move around in from inside the creature with working pincers at the end. Uh, but those were damaged on the first day of shooting. So oh, no. the pincers wouldn't work, uh, but the arms would still move. Upon seeing the creature for the first time, Beverly Garland broke out in laughter. <laughs> That's and, a great sign. And said, that conquered the world? Roger, I could bop it over the head with my handbag. I could step on it and end the movie. So after those comments, uh, Blaisdell added a long stalk to the creature's head to try and make it look taller. And Corman decided to never shoot it in frame with actual actors in order to, like, disguise the scale. So it's always, like, shot, reverse shot. And the two of them realized their error in making a short monster. The crew dubbed it an upside-down ice cream cone, and Blaisdell hoped that the camera would make it look bigger. I mean, that's what all men want. <laughs> so It Conquered the World was released as AIP's first double feature uh, with the She-Creature, which is next week's movie. Okay. Uh, it was released on July 15th, 1956. In the UK, the BBFC initially refused it a certificate on the grounds that the defeat of the monster at the end depicted animal cruelty. <laughs> like, because the creature is a, an animal? Right. So producer Samuel Arkoff pointed out that the creature was not an animal. It was a person. Just a person from another world, but not like an animal from another world, like a, a person. And therefore, it's not animal cruelty. We're, we're killing a person, just a, an otherworldly person. And so the movie was passed with an X certificate. Oh, boy. The double feature was another hit for AIP. And surprising everyone, It Conquered the World got good reviews. <laughs> Mostly for the screenplay... Uh, oh. But also for Corman's direction and the cast's performances, only the monster was subject to widespread mockery. While it had a VHS release in the 90s, uh, it has to date only been released on DVD in Japan. Okay. Uh, it is on our YouTube playlist, so you can watch along. And it was the subject of Season 3, Episode 11 of Mystery Science Theater 3000 where it was called Roger Corman's finest film up to that point. Up to that point, okay. Yeah. Up to that point of Mystery Science Theater watching? I'm not sure if they meant up to that point of Mystery Science Theater's run as a TV show, or up to that point in Corman's career. Well, I guess we'll have to watch to find out. Indeed. Uh, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can head to our website, screenscenepodcast.tumblr.com which is where you will find the YouTube playlist. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss It Conquered the World from 1956, directed by Roger Corman. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching It Conquered the World from 1956, directed by Roger Corman. What did you think, Ben? 
Um, I actually really liked this. I will say it has a typically hyperbolic 1950s movie title. This is more like It Conquered My Small Town. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I did really like it. Yeah, I think it was actually a pretty good movie. It's another take on the Cold War paranoia, the aliens are mind-controlling us. Communism. Yeah, kind of um, story that we've seen, like, a few times now. Like, I want to say this is at least the fourth. But it did a lot of things that were interesting enough and different enough from those other movies that I ended up really liking it. Yeah, it did some cool stuff. Do you want to talk about the cool stuff that it did? For sure. So, it seems like there's a lot of characters in this movie, but we kind of focus on four main ones. Really two, and then, like, their wives. Mm-hmm. So we have Dr. Tom Anderson, played by Lee Van Cleef, and his wife, Claire, played by Beverly Garland. And Tom is our antagonist. And then we have Dr. Paul Nelson, played by Peter Graves, and his wife, Joan, played by Sally Fraser. Now, when the movie starts, we see that there is a satellite launched by Dr. Nelson and his team. It's going up into space. And Dr. Anderson, who is a physicist, by the way, uh, he's against it because of, like, who knows what else is out there. And, like, it could bring about the end of society. Anderson knows what's out there and is trying to tell people, like, they're going to shoot it down because they don't want us in space. And that sounds just as crazy to everyone in the movie as it did me saying it just now. Um, It's worth noting that this movie came out, like, over a year before the launching of Sputnik 1 into space. So, like, satellites are a near future kind of thing in terms of when this movie came out. It's like a movie today talking about AI or or whatever, right? Yeah, so you have a little bit of, like, an Avengers theme of, like, oh no, like, the world, the the universe will know the Earth is ready for a higher thing of war or whatever. (laughs) I don't remember the Avengers. I feel like that's more, like, the better context here is the day the Earth stood still. Sure. Um, but the satellite is still launched. (laughs) Three months later, satellite is still up there and it's doing fine. Until it goes missing. When it goes missing, Anderson has Nelson and his wife over for dinner, because they're friends. And Dr. Anderson tries to, like, tell Nelson about his latest theories. And also that, hey, I have this radio equipment and I'm having contact with off-world visitors. Anderson's wife is... Very, very skeptical about all this, and she doesn't like that he's telling their friends about it. It She definitely has, like, a had-it-up-to-here kind of feeling with it. Like, you know, it's like that weird hobby that your partner has that you, you don't really approve of, but you let them get away with, and you wish they wouldn't bring it up at the dinner table. Only the weird hobby is talking to aliens. Now, Anderson... Anderson pulls a little bit of a uh, a Gaius Baltar from Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because he is in contact with um, some creatures, some beings from Venus, and he has coordinated with them to basically steal the satellite. It gets sent to Venus, and then it comes back to Earth, 
and one of these Venusians uh, is on board, but like the other scientists have no idea. Because it disappeared, Nelson's team is like, okay, hey, we gotta bring it down so we can study like where the fuck did it go. The satellite doesn't come down the way that it's supposed to, and when it does land and kind of crash, the Venusian is on it and is now on Earth. As the creature lands, all electricity, water, flow, etc., uh, all the power gets cut. Yeah, it's it's like an EMP, except that, as Sarah just mentioned, um, like the 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 pumps and like hydraulics don't work, independent generators don't work, because the explanation we get is that the alien has de-energized everything, like just removed energy from everything, which is a little more far-reaching than maybe this writer intended it to be. Like, the actual consequences of that would be extremely dire. Um, that being said, we do get evidence throughout the movie that, like, the Venusian has pretty um, pinpoint control over this. So we can buy the, like, well, how come the water doesn't work, but, like, plants and animals still exist? You know, it's, it's fine. Yeah, so people's watches stop, vehicles stop, planes crash from the sky, mm -hmm. uh, the hospital's iron lung stops working. Yeah. All, all those kind of dire consequences. Mm -hmm. It's unclear how far-reaching this is. The... Yeah, whether it's just small-town America, like where we are, or if it's like the entire world. Yeah. We learn from Dr. Anderson that the reason he is doing this is because, you know, he's friends with the Venusian, and the Venusian is here to assimilate people on Earth and help get rid of emotions and thereby have peace in the world. The Venusian saw invasion of the body snatchers, and it was like, that's a great idea. Yeah, and Anderson was like, mm-hmm, I agree. <laughs> yeah, he thinks he's, like, saving the world by bringing us, like, like, he thinks that the monster in this movie is, like, a messiah, basically. Yeah. They do um, tell Anderson, like, we don't recognize your god. <laughs> yeah. The Venusian. Um, what what name did Blasdell give Oh, Blasdell him? called it uh, Bula. Bula. Okay, I'm going to refer to it as Bula, because mm -hmm. Venusian is really hard to say. Yeah, for sure. Um, but no one in the picture calls it Bula. Um, Bula arrived here on their own. It's kind of explained like that there's like eight others back on Venus because it's like a dying planet. Bula is the only one who made it here, which also means that they have limited resources. So Bula creates, <laughs> releases these bat kind of creatures that basically attack specific people and install electronic control devices. Um, on the back of the necks. Like that other movie, Invasion from Mars or whatever. Yeah, and the the bats attacking people visually to me really remind me of um, the season one finale of Star Trek where like there are the parasites that look like um, prank vomit flying around that oh, like, like attach to yeah. people's backs and stuff. They're like that, but with like like mandibles so that they can bite you and give you this thing. Now, the specific people that Bula has programmed the bats to go get um, are based on Dr. Anderson's recommendations of, like, the mayor, 
the general in charge of where they launch the satellite that's in town, um, Dr. Nelson, and, uh, like, the sheriff of the town. Uh, and, of course, their wives. So that's a total of eight. Eight bats. I, uh, uh, <laughs> I did find it interesting that the wives are targeted. Like, the women in this movie are pretty much defined by their relationships to men. Like, it's always like, oh, I'm this person's wife. But there's something interesting about, like, the idea that, like, oh, yeah, like, to successfully mind control, like, an important person, like, you also have to be mind controlling their spouse. Yeah, it's interesting. As far as the success of this assimilation goes, the sheriff gets got, the general gets got, um, the mayor and his wife get killed uh, during the evacuation of the town because of, like, mobs running over them, basically. Yeah, the, the sheriff, who's already mind-controlled by this point, orders the evacuation, and he's not doing it in, like, this is not a, like, everyone move calmly and orderly. This is him, like, firing a gun into the air and being like, we're evacuating! Get out of here! Scram! Yeah, um, and he even shoots uh, a newspaper guy who refuses to leave. That's not the way to evacuate calmly. <laughs> And we also see that Nelson's wife, Joan, gets attacked. Joan does try to get Nelson assimilated by basically being like, Hey, honey, I have a present for you. Here's a bat in the face. What's up? (laughs) I'm going to go for a walk. And then when I come back, we can have a nice little talk about how nice it is to be assimilated. Nelson kills his bat creature, um, but then pretends to be assimilated when Joan comes back and basically asks, like, so we're like this forever. And she's like, yep, forever and ever. There's no way to reverse it. And he's like, that's too bad, and shoots her cold. Yeah, by this point, Nelson knows what's going on with the alien and the invasion and everything because basically Anderson's explained it all to him because they're friends, and Anderson thinks it's a good idea. During those conversations, um... Nelson, as well as Anderson's wife, Claire, uh, do try to reason with Anderson, um, saying things that, like, love and courage and other kind of emotions are worth fighting for, but Anderson doesn't really listen. He's like, no, you guys don't understand. Like, Bula here, he's a good guy. He listens to me. (laughs) He listens to me. Not like those scientists back at the university who laughed in my face. Right, exactly, yeah. Um... So after Nelson kills his bat, Anderson is instructed by Bula to kill Nelson. He's too dangerous to be alive, and, you know, we have limited resources. It's going to take a week for me to produce another bat, which implies that Bula is birthing these bats. Which which is is really interesting, because then it's, like, all um, organic. It's not, like, technological. Yeah, well, and that's sort of what's implied, because when we see the bats get released, it's basically just, like... Bula, um, for lack of a better term, hiking up their skirt, and the bat's just, like, flying out from under it? Uh, Straight out. Like a bat out of hell. Bat right out of the womb. Yeah. (laughs) So Anderson's like, yeah, Claire, I gotta kill Nelson. And Claire's like, he's your best friend. And Anderson's like, Bula told me to, so I don't know what you want me to do. So Claire takes the shotgun to the cave where the creature is hiding out, um, and goes and, like, shoots it full of bullets and says, I'll see you in hell, (laughs) literally. 
Now, by this point, Nelson has made it to Anderson's to kind of, like, talk it out, and they're both kind of planning to kill the other person. But then they hear Claire's screams over the radio. And this is when Anderson finally comes around to fighting off Beulah. Um, so he heads to the cave with a blowtorch. Um, he does encounter the sheriff, uh, and he torches the dude mm-hmm. in the face. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Nelson heads to the science satellite lab and shoots the three folks there that are assimilated. Yeah. Also, meanwhile, there's an army unit in the woods. Where the general, like, sent them. Because the general, um, when he became assimilated, told all of the soldiers at the satellite installation, told all of the scientists that, yeah, the reason that your clock stopped and everything is because the commies are coming. They're taking over everything, so we are on lockdown now. And the army, you get to go hide out in the woods to wait for my instructions. Which don't come because he gets got by Nelson. Yeah. Um, but this army unit overhears Claire's screams coming from this, this cave, so they go in to fight Bula. And that's what they're doing when Anderson arrives. And he... Anderson takes his little blowtorch, shoves it into the creature's eye, and kills him. Yeah. But then he himself gets got by uh, Bula's claws. Mm -hmm. Nelson finally arrives after, you know, just shooting up everyone. Yeah. And narrates how Anderson's wish for peace led us to death and despair because we need to solve our own issues. Us working to peace has to come from humanity alone. Yeah, it's it's a very familiar, I think, message if you've seen a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, a lot of sci-fi in general, but like, I feel like this message comes up in original series Star Trek a lot. This idea that like, if someone just comes and hands Utopia to you, it's not going to work. You have to like actually work for it and grow towards it yourself. Um, and that's going to take like hardship and struggle. Yeah. The end. So this movie has some B movie hallmarks to it. Like constantly going back and forth between like three locations, a lot of walking. Yeah. Uh, and some of the camera work is a bit like subpar. There's some like dodgy framing when the scientists are at their workstations, it's clear that, like, Corman and his cameraman don't really know how to frame that because we just get a lot of shots of, like, the backs of people's heads as they're looking at their stations rather than, like, finding a way to frame it so that we can see their face. You know, so there's stuff like that. But honestly, this is a pretty well-made and well-put-together movie. Yeah, It ran the risk of being repetitive, Mm. of the constant back and forth between Anderson and Nelson. Nelson, like, going to the town, going back home, going to the town, going back to Anderson's, going to the satellite station, going to Anderson's. Like, it it did run the risk of being repetitive, and it did kind of hit that near the end during the climax, because Mm. so many people have died that you kind of just have to stick with one person walking around. Um, But it did a fairly good job of keeping up the pace. Yeah, the movie has really good tension. Um, It has themes that it wants to explore. It has intelligent dialogue. Like, whether the science in it is hyper-dodgy or not, the actual, like, dialogue about the characters' motivations and beliefs is really well done. The characters have arcs, and more than just, like, one character has an arc. And it doesn't shy away from being brutal. Yeah, it's pretty grisly with its violence, um, between, like, the shooting of Joan, 
uh, we see a female scientist get strangled and she lets out like a death rattle. Like it's, it's intense. The torching of the sheriff, we see, well, it might be, I think it's just a model, but we see a plane crashing. I think it's stock footage. Ah, well, it looks like a model that's like coming towards the camera crashing and then it blows up Mm -hmm. rather than actually crashing when it hits the ground. And even like the death of the creature is like, you know, he shoves a blowtorch into its eye, which like oozes and melts as he turns the blowtorch on and presumably fucking melts its brain from the inside. Even when the violence isn't like visually grisly, um, the movie has basically the stones to kill people, right? Like it has the typical large B-movie cast, but like by the end of the movie, like three of those people are alive and it's not the breeding couple. And not only that, but every character before they end up dying does actually contribute to the story. Like the script is pretty tight overall. You know, it's like, okay, he only can control this many people, right? So he can't control everyone. He can only make this many control units. So that's why, like, if you defeat one, you're not just still screwed. You know, the people who get controlled all, like, are doing things. Like, you know, the mayor would have been obvious, but the mayor dies early. You know, so you have the general so that the soldiers at the base can get sent off to who knows where. The sheriff so the town can be evacuated. The scientists so that, like... I don't know, presumably more Venusians can get, like, here to Earth with, like, a ground control team. (laughs) Um, Everything kind of makes sense, and everyone contributes. Like, at first, when we were watching it, I kind of didn't understand the point of Joan. Because early on, you have the two couples, and Claire as a character is really well-defined from the get-go. Because, you know, when the movie starts, like, the cracks in the Anderson marriage are already there. She doesn't know her husband is a uh, collaborator yet, but she does think he's basically crazy, and she's really at the end of her rope. Um, Whereas Joan just kind of follows uh, Nelson around for the first, like, third of the movie, just being like, hey, Paul, like, yeah, I got the car for you, and just kind of, like, being a sidekick uh, and not really doing anything. But once she became assimilated, um, which is the word... That word is not used in the movie, but it's a convenient one. It's like the easiest way to describe them being controlled. Yeah. So once she becomes assimilated, like, then it was, like, clear, oh, that's why this character's in this movie, right? Even the, like, comic relief soldiers, who at first it was like, oh, these guys are just here for comic relief. Like, they're the guys who then come in to fight the creature at the end. Like, the sheriff is there, you know, because when he gets killed, that's how Anderson gets the car to go to the... Like, everyone is important, and everyone's story gets wrapped up in a way that then contributes to the ending, making sure that we have all the right, like, elements in place. Um, so I was really impressed by that, and I was really impressed with just, like, the fact that there weren't really any loose ends, and that you could understand and, like, follow the creative decisions being made. Yeah. The effects are fairly good. Yeah. Like, for its budget. For what it is, we'll say. Um, the bats that fly around, I think they use a mix of, like, actual model things on set, and then in, like, harder shots, like, while Nelson is driving or when he's in his home, the bats are matted in, which allows the actors to be very, like, deliberate in how they are, like, fighting it off rather than like 
fighting, but also trying to avoid hitting the model because they didn't want to break it. Yeah, it also allows the bats to be, like, more animated. Like, the way that you can kind of tell the difference between the, we've got a thing on a wire and the mat shots, because um, the matting is actually quite quite good, um, is that, like, in the matted shots, the bats flap their wings instead of just, like, zooming, cru- cruising along. Yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's a good mix. I wish Bula was as convincing. He has a DreamWorks face. Yep. And his arms are very clearly, like, you know, just big, long tubes. They've got, like, kind of folds in them and yeah. stuff. And he's, like, very clearly, like, on wheels. Yeah. I do like his eyes. I think that was a neat touch with the light by- mm. behind them. And it is a creature design I have never seen before. That's, like, the thing about Paul Blaisdell's work in general. Like, his creatures are cheap, and his creatures maybe aren't effective for the story that they're in, um, but they are always really imaginative and memorable. You know, his aliens always look very alien. Yeah, most times when we've seen an alien in the past, besides maybe, um, I think it's like it came from outer space, Yeah, they've all been, like, bipedal humanoid looking kind of things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um like i'm thinking of like day the world ended where it was like clearly like a dude in like for lack of a better word like an ape suit style suit right or like even the metaluna mutant from the silent earth which is a very elaborate very well done makeup costume design thing uh still follows that like okay yeah two legs two arms two eyes a brain Whatever. I mean, this thing has a face, but it's like a face mounted on, like, the top part of, like, a red crayon with, like, big, long pincer arms. It's like a deformed star. Like a five-point star. Mm, okay. It's, it definitely just doesn't look human. Yeah. So the, I do give credit for that. The performances here are really good. At least the performances from the actors whose performances matter. So, Van Cleef and Graves? Yeah, and Beverly Garland. Yeah. Um, and I think they help a lot because those three actors are giving performances that, at least in my opinion, are way out of the normal league of a movie like this. And that really helps sell the character drama that the script is going for because the script of this movie, I think, really aptly recognizes that, like, Yes, having the alien who's taking us over and controlling our minds to, like, make us all automatons is, like, a great way of, like, playing into Cold War fears. We've we've done that. We know that. But this writer understands that, like, what would make the story interesting and the movie interesting is how that creates conflict between the humans who are wrapped up in the story. Because ultimately... It's very hard to, like, like if you want your alien to be alien and to be this unhuman thing that is a threat to us because it's an other, right, rather than an alien who just sort of is an allegory for something human, then it's very hard to, like, dramatize that conflict. You know, Bula doesn't have, like, dialogue or, like, a character arc or, like, even really motivation, but Anderson does. And the conflict is about Anderson versus Nelson in terms of the philosophies of, like, you know, the collaborator versus the resistance, basically. And the script understands that, like, that's interesting. 
and that like Claire's position as like the wife of this like brilliant scientist collaborator is interesting. The characterizations of all of these people are very apt. Like Van Cleef is so convincing as a mad scientist that he actually makes the archetype believable. Yeah. And I think a key thing that this movie does is it sort of takes that they laughed at me kind of thing that all mad scientists have and express it in a way that I really understood Van Cleef's character. You know, when he gives his big speech about why he's doing what he's doing, he's like, yeah, I'm going to save Earth from stupidity. What he means by that basically is, you know, he was a brilliant scientist who was on the Manhattan Project and on the early rocket programs. And then people stopped listening to him and stopped, like, holding him up on the pedestal as being brilliant and kind of were like, oh, you're a quack and stopped listening to him. And even Nelson, when he's talking about Anderson with someone else, he's like, yeah, Anderson lives in a fantasy world. He's extremely intelligent. And so he's able to come up with these really brilliant sounding theories to like justify his fantasies, or he's really good at like twisting real facts to fit his conspiracies. But like, ultimately he's off his rocker, right? Yeah. Um, Anderson has fallen into the QAnon hole. Right. And like, even though Anderson does turn out to be right, because there are (laughs) aliens and he is communicating with them, the psychology of someone like that is really important to understanding his character because he is very, very smart, but he wraps himself up in these things because of the same reason why, like, I think conspiracy theories appeal to a lot of smart people, which is that it makes them feel special. It's like, oh, I'm the only one who knows. You're all sheeple. And, like, listen to me. Like, I'm too smart to fall for the wool that's been pulled over your eyes. And, like, the number of times that I've listened to, like, really smart people dismiss the majority of humanity as being stupid and not taking the time to, like, understand other people's points of view. Yeah. Like I've seen that often enough that I recognize it as a believable human trait in the character of Anderson. And it makes how he gets seduced by the dark side in this movie really believable because what the alien does is it plays to Anderson's ego. It's like, hello, you were right all along. You were always right. You're going to be my best friend because you're the smartest human on the planet and like everyone will see finally that you were right and you will be the uh, like the savior because you're going to be the like you know peter to my jesus when i show up on earth and like you know i mean that's the same thing that happens with baltar in bsg other than like bula isn't sleeping with anderson um (laughs) but it's it's a very well observed bit of characterization to understand that like that's kind of how a person like that would fall into that. And it's also very true of basically the kind of people who this movie is a metaphor for. Because, like, once again, the alien invasion here is a metaphor for communism. But I think more so than what's going on with the town and the mind control, what the movie's talking about is the way that intellectuals in America in the 1950s became sympathetic to communism... Um, because they were, you know, smart enough to look at capitalism and understand its flaws and, you know, believe that communism was a better system. But then those intellectuals were used as pawns by the Soviet Union, which didn't care about making America a better place, didn't care about 
those people didn't care about these intellectuals. They were using them as, as, as pawns. And there were these guys who, you know, once the FBI figured out they were funneling secrets to the KGB, they were like, okay, bring me to Moscow and I'll defect. And, you know, they arrived expecting the communist utopia and often soon found out that their lives were shitty and that their situation was a shitty one. And that's, for me at least, who it feels like this movie is about. Mm-hmm. It's about intellectuals who get buttered up by people who want to use them, right? And the way that was happening at the time. It definitely invokes the fears that we've seen in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, kind of most directly as a comparison, especially because it's a small town. Um, and, oh, they look like us, that mm-hmm. kind of deal. And then, of course, we have uh, some inspiration from The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is from 1951. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is from this same year. Yeah. But the inspiration from The Day the Earth Stood Still is kind of with Anderson in the, I guess, prologue mm-hmm. part, but then also the literal, like, stopping of electricity and stopping time. Right, and, like... Basically, Anderson's mistake here is he thinks that Bula is um, Michael Reddy from The Day the Earth Stood Still, um, Klaatu. But in actuality, Bula is, you know... Bula. Bula, yeah. Um, Bula, Bula, Bula. (laughs) Oi, oi, oi. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. So, like, and, you know, speaking of previous movies that have done this, like, we've got Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I think is the quintessential one, but, you know... It came from outer space, which also has, like, a weird monster hanging out in a cave um, controlling everything. Invaders from Mars with the devices on the back of the neck. Um, and even a previous Roger Corman movie, The Beast with a Million Eyes, which was about an alien intelligence coming to Earth and trying to mind control its way into power, right? Yeah, yeah that's one thing here that um, is different from, say, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The people who are being... who have been assimilated... They receive direct orders from Bula, not to each other, but just they do still have that like instant mind link to mm-hmm. Bula. Mm-hmm. And speaking of this compared to Beast with a Million Eyes, once again, we have a movie that has interests in its narrative that are beyond just like the bare premise, mm-hmm. right? Like once again, we have a depiction of marital strife, which is at the heart of the crisis, and Beverly Garland handles her character really, really well. She has this great arc of going from sort of being frustrated with Anderson, but, like, she's still in love with him. He's still her husband, so she's trying to, like, save him to finally realizing that, like, he's super far gone and we're past the point of no return. But she still loves him, so she's not going to, like, kill her husband. But she recognizes that her husband has been, like, you know, ruined by this monster, so she grabs a gun and goes to go shoot the monster, right? And Yeah, it's dope. It's so satisfying. And, like, I'm cool with the fact that she doesn't kill the thing herself. Like, quite honestly, if the monster could be defeated by just, like, a housewife with a rifle, like, as empowering that is for the housewife, in terms of this being, like, a horror movie, that's a shitty monster. Um, but just having her try on her own, of her own volition, nobody tells her to do it, it's, it's just the result of her arc and her agency, and that's really fantastic. Like, again, we see this continuing trend of strong women in Roger Corman movies. I, I want to come back to Star Trek okay. for a minute. 
this movie and and the other movies we've seen where it's like an alien being taking over humanity has really done this dichotomy between emotion and logic. Yes. Cold calculated logic and humanity being defined by its feelings, its emotions, you know, love, courage, yes, the violence that come along with these emotions, but that's who we are versus an alien cold logical thing Mm -hmm. that's unfeeling Mm -hmm. now obviously with these being horror movies they tend to be in a good versus evil uh dichotomy Mm -hmm. but when star trek starts airing it puts that humanity versus logic with kirk and spock right as a collaborative experience yeah while that conflict exists within the character of Spock and within his character, it's defined as conflict. The central mechanism by which that show works is a dialectic between logic and emotion defined by Spock and McCoy with Kirk as since he's the one in charge and he's the hero having to be the one who synthesizes between the two. Yeah. And I just thought that was interesting because that comes in just under 10 years But it's interesting that, like, these dichotomies have consistently been showing up in stuff that Gene Roddenberry may have very well seen. Well, yeah, and, like, Forbidden Planet, which I think comes out this year as well, is all about, you know, this totally rational, logical scientist who has suppressed his emotions to the point where they literally become, like, a monster that go around rampaging, right? Yeah. And so this question of, like, emotion versus logic... um, It's interesting to see it play out in different ways, even if it's occasionally a bit repetitive, Um, particularly because we usually get it in the form of like the scientist is logical and therefore unfeeling and therefore bad. It has occasionally a bit of a strain of like anti-intellectualism to it, even if like the hero is usually also a scientist. Yeah. I mean, like in the case of the few that we've gotten here where like the big bad is the alien, it has less of that anti-intellectualism streak. It It's nice that it's everyone here is a scientist, and, you know, it's not just scientist versus the everyman. There were some points in this movie that I found really interesting with that philosophy, especially if we're supposed to read the alien as a metaphor for communism, because the argument that this movie makes is that why humanity is stronger than the alien is because the alien is an individual. Because if you are solely rational and logical, you would only look out for yourself. Um, Whereas humans look out for each other because they have feelings of love and loyalty and duty and obligation, and those are all emotions. So you have the group, and then the group is stronger than the individual. Except communism is, at its root, about, like... A unity yeah. versus capitalism where it's like you, the individual, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Like that same argument that rationally you should look out for yourself and be an individualist is like the heart of like objectivism, which is like a very, very pro-capitalist philosophy, very, very anti-communist philosophy. But I think American culture of this time, no matter what its point of view, kind of had just a tendency to define what is good as American and what is bad as communist without really checking to see if those were, like, consistent in any way. Yeah. What I think is also interesting is 
outside of these films, in like the broader cultural context, we usually see the emotion versus logic dichotomy as being fairly gendered. True. Emotion is considered as feminine, logic is considered as masculine. Yeah, at least in the 20th century, you tend to find that that swaps depending on what the culture thinks is the better of the two at the time. Yeah, so that's that's interesting to me. Um, I don't really have any place in going with this, but it's just interesting that we have that being very gendered, yet in these films we have, you know, emotion as good guys, logic as alien other, um, and that probably comes from that idea of, like, the cold, calculating Russians. Right. Versus and the, like, feeling emotive Americans. Maybe. Although I will point out that, like, the cold, calculating eyes of the invading aliens is a motif that goes back to War of the Worlds. Yeah. Like, that's literally how the book opens or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, fair, very fair. Um, I will also say that there is still, like, I think an element of gender to the presentation of those ideas in these movies in that the person who argues the strongest for love as being like, you know, love conquers all and like we, we shouldn't give up love and emotion is usually the female character in yeah, the movie. Yeah, we saw that in Body Snatchers. We see that here with Claire. Yeah. Um, it's Nelson who argues for like other emotions like, you know, loyalty. Patriotism. Or patriotism, absolutely. That, you know, all of those kind of other emotions besides love. You know, but if you want to have a movie where Peter Graves and Lee Van Cleef have, like, Star Trek-style sci-fi philosophical debates, like, this is the movie for you. Like, so much of that material is elevated just by hearing, like, Peter Graves say it, you know? And and Van Cleef does a very good job. I've never seen him in a role like this. Yeah, and he, he, like, he's acting. He is giving the role its due by performing it such that, like I said earlier, it's believable, right? I think for me, the one thing that really pulls this movie down, as fun as he is, is Bula. Because, like, beyond the fact that the monster looks silly and is clearly cheap, it's a bad design. And it's a design that makes it really hard to read the monster as intimidating. Like, Beverly Garland was right. Like, even by putting a big pokey stalk on its head, it's everyone in the movie is looking down at it. And that's a visual motif signifying powerlessness to people culturally, even if they don't know it. Subconsciously, that's how the visual language of film works. And so, like... You know, when there's like 10 soldiers surrounding this slow moving thing, all looking down at it and firing at it, like it's hard for it to feel menacing. Um, you know, the most menacing the creature is, is a shot where like Beverly Garland's moving through the cave and one of its claws comes out behind her from the shadows. Yeah, that was dope. And it I comes out like from that. like over her shoulder, which is much, much higher than this creature can, can reach. <laughs> um, but, you know, a part of me thought like, This movie probably would have been better if the monster was, like, kept in the shadows or, like, just suggested and not seen or was, like, an unseen presence. And then I remembered that Corman tried to do that with Beast with a Million Eyes, realized it didn't work because people want a monster and had to, like, shove a monster into that movie half-baked. Here, the problem with the monster is they, instead of thinking about, like, what would be intimidating or threatening on film, they were thinking about, like, 
well, what would a Venusian really look like? Which is admirable, even if all of their research was wrong. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't help serve the story. Because I'm sorry, Neil deGrasse Tyson, but sometimes being scientifically accurate does not help tell the story that the filmmaker is setting out to tell. But what's interesting is we have Corman saying, like, yeah, so that taught me never to do that again. And Beast with a Million Eyes taught him to have the monster. Like, And they're similar movies. So it's like, because he's making B-movies that are cheap, quickly made, in and out, you know, he can do these things where he can sort of try and fail, and then learn from his mistakes, try again, and we're seeing him, like, iterating on himself, right? Which is a process that will only get you better and better results. And you don't really have that anymore for directors. Because movies are costing, like, way, way, way more money. And uh, movies are such a financial risk that you feel obligated to change it up rather than just iterating on the exact same thing, trying to do it better. Right. Like comics, you see that a lot mm -hmm. because that time frame is a lot shorter and the financial risk is a lot lower. Yeah, and the other thing about movies now is like either you're doing, as you just mentioned, Sarah, making every movie different. And, you know, that that's the same for blockbuster or indie directors because if you're a blockbuster director, your movie cost $300 million to make and it took like at least three years to make. So you have to make sure that like everything is good and you can't repeat yourself. If you're an indie filmmaker, it probably costs you less money, but it was probably harder to get that money. And that process of just getting that money probably meant that it took you five years to make the movie, even if actually making it took you like a month. So again, if it takes that much time and energy to make the thing, you can't treat it as like a throwaway learning experience. And so, you know, yes, you have to make it different every time, but also in today's market, the directors who make mistakes don't often get the chance to do that iterating, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like your Colin Trevorrow's, your Josh Tranks, if you have a big profile failure, your career kind of takes a different direction for a while. Yep. So I know you said contemporary reviews called this horror. Mm -hmm. You seem to agree mm -hmm. that this is horror. I'm not so sure. I think it's worth having a discussion about. When we were watching it through, like, the first, I guess, half of the movie, I was like, oh... Oh no, this is just a sci-fi alien invasion movie. This isn't horror. And then there was a point reached where I was like, nah, this is horror. Um, is it when people started dying? Yes and no. Okay. But like, definitely the use of violence in this movie was a big factor for that. The fact that the movie's willing to be like shocking with its violence, to be frank about it, to just be clear that like, yeah, this person's getting killed and they're getting killed on screen. You know, and it's violent to the degree that the budget allows. Like, there are times where maybe someone doesn't have a wound from their bullet that they were shot with because we don't have the money for, like, makeup. Um, but it, I well, think... you'd have to get the costume laundered out. Oh, that. yeah, no. It's a real bitch, Ben. Yeah, no, 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 no. But I think it's a sign of, like, changing times. 
Sure. Right? That the violence is starting to be more explicit, more on screen. And that contributed, but there was definitely other things as well. Um, but I kind of want to hear your perspective before I start going on about mine. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I feel like this is much more science fiction, especially in its depiction or use of the fear that it's doing. It, it feels more akin to, like, Day the Earth Stood Still than Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, everyone's turning on you. It really felt like things were closing in. And, you know, sort of final shot of looking into the camera being like, They're here! Yeah. They're coming for you! Yeah. Whereas this film, like, we destroy the singular, Bula. The people who are assimilated are easily shot and tidied up. Mm-hmm. Like, at one point, Nelson just walks into a room, sees the three assimilated people who are talking about, like, yes, and then we'll kill the president first, right. and then the, like, Senate. Yeah. And Nelson walks in, goes bang, 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 and they fall down immediately. Yeah. Because, like, they're just people. Mm-hmm. But also, like, cool, that's wrapped up. Yeah. Awesome. And, yes, Bula was hard to kill. It took a blowtorch to the eye to fully kill him. But also, we, can't, we, we we handled it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, it's not, he's not an implacable threat. Yeah. Um, no, I totally agree with you there. Like, compared to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this has less horror because it's much more surmountable. Yeah. Whereas The Day the Earth Stood Still, obviously not horror. It's dealing with science fiction ideas and philosophies and allowing those philosophies to have like space to because <laughs> it's science fiction yeah um allowing them room to be shared and we get that here for mm-hmm, sure mm-hmm. um it's a lot bloodier <laughs> than did still but like it's much more focused i think on having those discussions and, like, having the fear stoke those discussions rather than having the fear stoke feelings of being horrified or feelings of that horror terror. Yeah, I was reminded a little of, like, The Creature Walks Among Us in terms of, like, the movie giving time for these discussions and philosophies to play out. Yeah. Um, which also kind of speaks to Star Trek in the sense of productions realizing that aliens... And special effects are expensive, but you still got to fill the running time somehow. And if you can hold the audience's attention with dialogue, that's better than just shots of people wandering around Bronson Canyon. But I do think there is horror here. And I think there's enough horror that we can rank it. Agreed that it's more tipped to sci-fi. But what I see here are a few different aspects of horror. It does definitely not threaten the audience in the same way that Invasion of the Body Snatchers does. But, like, I see here things like Anderson's character arc, which is about the horror of realizing way too late that you've been played and that you were an idiot and that, like, you've lost everything that mattered to you because of that. There's Claire's character arc which is about, you know, the horror of slowly realizing that, like, the person you love isn't that person anymore. And, you know, kind of snapping because of that. Um, Fucking Nelson goes through the horror of, like, not only realizing that the person he loves isn't that person anymore, but fucking just shooting them. 
like just yeah. down and like I will say this about Nelson like he does he is the guy you want on your zombie team because he's the guy where like when that one person is like no 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 I didn't get bit I just have a cold he's like blam blam and it's like well we don't have to worry about it anymore do we folks like <laughs> You know, like he does take a moment to grieve. Yes, he's not a monster, but like, no, he is going to do what needs to be done. That being said, because they kill everyone who is assimilated before they kill Bula, there's part of me that's like, what if Bula though was like, you know, the thing from the Avengers, where if you kill the main central thing, all the other things fall down, right? Like maybe they would have been fine once Bula was dead, but you'll never know because you definitely shot them all first. But yeah, like Nelson's failing was not watching the 2012 film, The Avengers. Yes. The moment for me when I started going, oh no, this is horror, is the scene where Nelson comes home to Joan. And she's got this big smile on her face. And she's like, yeah, come in and sit down, honey. Like, tell me about your day. And she's like smiling in the doorway like, oh, yeah, I just wanted to like look nice for you. And like, I have a present for you. And like, I'm going for a walk and like throws the bat at him. And she's like, well, I'll be back when that's done fucking rewriting your brain. And then like comes back from her walk. And she's just like, yeah, so like you're cool now. And like. She's just smiling at him the whole time as he's realizing that he has to kill his wife. Then I was like, oh, this might be horror. And then, like, after that was when, like, those scientists, like, the one lady scientist at the army base that launches the satellites, like, they've been essentially quarantined there because the general is like, yeah, the commies are invading, so you're under house arrest. Well, protective custody, I mean. And they're all trapped there. And so she's like, you know, they're staying the night. And I knew she was done for the second she woke up in the middle of the night because she was wearing a white slip. <laughs> and she walks out to see the other two nerds who are played by Jonathan Hayes and the screenwriter. And she's like, yeah, hey, you guys are up early. Uh, anyone want some coffee? And they're like, yeah, go, go make some coffee for us. And she's like, cool. And then she goes to like, I guess the drawer there where they keep the coffee supplies is the drawer that these guys decided to throw the bats into after they got assimilated. So she sees the bats and they're like, oh, we we wish you hadn't seen that. And then they just fucking choke her out on screen. One of them does. And yeah. then the other one continues on with his work. Right. And then later Nelson finds her outside in like the driveway, which implies that they just like after she was dead, we're like, well, this is in the way. And, like, picked up her body and just, like, tossed it out the door. And that scene comes, like, fairly soon after killing Joan. And so, like, the wheels just started turning. The snowball started rolling. You know, then you've got Claire trying to fight off the monster in the cave and screaming and, and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I think there's enough horror here that we can rank it. I agree on all your points as to why it's not the most horror it could be in the situation. But I think compared to, like, some of the movies that we have led onto the list, I think there's enough horror here. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if this was, like, kind of a continuing offshoot between, like, the sci-fi horror stuff mm -hmm. we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But I think you make some good points. Yeah, I was totally willing to just throw this as, like, oops, this is sci-fi until we got to some of these points that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so I didn't come up with a range. Mm -hmm. uh, where were you looking? I'm going to need your help because my range was very big because of the fact that, like, this is a cheap movie. 
it's not as effective as it could be because of its budgetary problems and its monster problems. Nobody's perfect, then. Yeah, and um, it's also... Yeah, but we're ranking things on a list from best to worst. So they best be perfect? You know, it's not as horrific as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I think is the natural thing to compare it to. The problem I had was this. I like it more than Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and I think it's a better movie. I think it's a movie that people should see. It is a good movie. The reason I think it's better than Invasion of the Body Snatchers is because of what I said earlier about the alien invasion plot being used as a device to create character drama, which we don't really have in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is much more just a paranoia us versus them story. I found the human drama of this movie and like the question of like being a collaborator and all these things to be much more interesting than what's going on in Invasion of the Body Snatchers on like a dramatic narrative level. Um, And I found the philosophy being discussed in this movie a lot more interesting than Invasion of the Body Snatchers kind of like vague, everything will be fine once we're all the same. It's unclear if it's a hive mind or if like what's going on, but it's bad. So because of that, my ceiling is number 24, which is currently the spot of Invasion of the Body Snatchers because I wanted to allow for the possibility that it was better. Um, right above Invasion of the Body Snatchers is Thing from Another World, which is also about a vegetable monster invading Earth from space, but is much, much clearly more horror than this. And a more, like, is just a better movie, like, all around, right? <laughs> um, and then I started working down to try and find, like, okay, what's a movie I think this is definitely better than? You know, even considering that this is a cheap Roger Corman movie. Um, and that gave me a really wide range because there's a lot of good stuff under Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But I finally made my way down to number 60. It came from Outer Space, sort of the other similar movie to this. And while the like Beholder monster that Millicent Patrick made for that movie is much better than Bula and much cooler and much more effective and threatening... As a movie, It Conquered the World is way better than It Came From Outer Space, which is very cardboard. Above It Came From Outer Space is The Amazing Mr. X, a.k.a. The Spiritualist, and I like this more than that. Above that is Jujin Yuki Otoko, or Half Human, which is good, but also, like, had way too many subplots going on than it needed, had, like, a whole thing about, like, poachers and, like random other garbage, and whereas this movie uses all of its parts effectively, right? There's no missing elements here or or extraneous bits. So I felt this was definitely better than Jujin Yuki Otoko, but then above that you have Cult of the Cobra, which is also like a B-movie that is wrestling with interesting ideas. So I thought maybe it's not as good as that. So that gave me a range of 24 to 58, which is a swath. So I'm going to need some help, Sarah. Well, I think we can look from 45 down, because 45 is dementia. Mm. And it's also wrestling with some like really interesting ideas as a B-movie. And I think that is much more solidly horror than this. Fair. So, yeah. Let's look 45 to 58. The midpoint of that is like between Son of Dracula and Freaks. Yeah. This is hard, Ben. I think um, Freaks 
does a really good job of setting up everyone's psychology, um, why the freaks would, like, band together and, like, be justified in, like, their revenge. Also in this range is The Creature Walks Among Us at 47, which right. you also identified during the discussion because both films allow room for the philosophical discussion. I think The Creature Walks Among Us has it much more, like, central to the, like, monster in that movie. Whereas in It Conquered the World, Bula is just, like, an instigator for those philosophies. Yeah, I think, I think It Conquered the World is a better horror movie than The Creature Walks Among Us. Because this is a movie where the monster is a threat. And in Creature Walks Among Us, it's more about, like, almost, like, examining the creature as, like, a focal point for these discussions. And ultimately, like, the creature's in the right when he goes on his rampage. You know, which, I mean, Frankenstein is sometimes, too, and he's horror. But, you know, I think the fact that this is much more about, like, bad things are happening to good people, whereas, like, the creature walks among us is much more like bad people getting their just desserts... And I think if there's a reason to put It Conquered the World above Creature Walks Among Us, um, for me, it really comes down to It Conquered the World has a better ending. Not, like, conceptually. I think conceptually the ending of Creature Walks Among Us is very strong. But in terms of actual, like... Um, exec- Making of it. Yeah, execution. execution. Like, as silly as Bula looks, like... The ending of this movie is a really strong climax where everything comes together. Each character gets their own, like, part to play, an element to contribute, and we get this, like, good speech and all of this stuff. Creature Walks Among Us, we talked about how, like, it just sort of stops, and it's really sudden and unexpected to the degree where you're not even quite sure what happened, um, which is a big weakness for that movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, The Black Sleep is right above that. The Black Sleep is so much better at being a horror movie. Yeah. But also has, like, a way too rushed ending. But It Conquered the World had a lot of walking yeah. in the climax. Yeah. So what do you think of Below the Black Sleep but Above Creature Walks Among Us? I think that's a good spot to put it. I do think that The Black Sleep has its own suite of issues, not the least of which is really misusing its cast in a way where, like, this movie uses its cast very well. I guess that's the difference between having big names in your movie who are has-beens versus having big names in your movie who are yet-to-bees. The Black Sleep, I think, on a craft level, and we talked about this in that episode, is much better made. So I'm, I'm okay with this. Okay, cool. So entering the list at the new number 47 is It Conquered the World from 1956, directed by Roger Corman. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking or non-ranking on the miscellaneous list, you can reach out through our Ask Box on Tumblr, through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. 
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can follow the podcast by subscribing to our RSS feed, and you can be a big help if you leave us a rating or a review on whatever service you use to listen to us. Uh, If you're a fan of the show and want to help out in other ways, you can do so by telling a friend about the show, uh, spreading the good word through word of mouth, or if you have the means, by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a supporter for just a dollar a month. Uh, At the $5 and $10 level, however, you get access to special bonus content that comes out, um, including cut audio from past episodes, special, like bonus episodes that are of like maybe a different format than the main show reviews uh horror short stories music audiobooks all kinds of crazy stuff is over there at our patreon so if you want to check that out head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast um you said it earlier but what are we watching next week we are watching the other half of this b movie double feature uh another aip release it's not roger corman um, but it is uh, Ed Wood's roommate Alex Gordon producing Okay. Um, the Monsters by Paul Blaisdell. Uh, the movie is The She-Creature. Okay. Well, next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.